and welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the people, policy, and politics that drive Texas. I'm your host, Brian Phillips, the Chief Communications Officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And with me, as always, is Derek Cohen, who now has a new title here mm-hmm. at TPPF. He is now the Vice President of Research. So if you don't like the things that we say or the things that we do, blame him first, because it's probably his fault. Fair. Uh, along with us, and we'll get to our guest in just a second, but uh, just to introduce him here, uh, uh, Josh Trevino is our CBBF's Chief of Intelligence and Research. He's also the Director for Texas Identity, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about. Josh, I'll introduce him a little bit more in a, in a second, but he is an expert on all things Texas history, which makes him an expert on the border, makes him an expert on all kinds of different things with Texas, and we're going to talk about immigration and border security a lot today. But first, I want to get to, as we always do, Derek, well, first of all, congratulations on Season 2. <laughs> of the right idea we've been re-upped i guess yeah but i believe the producers want to take us in a more edgy direction so as those storyboards come together we'll be uh we'll be consulting on that i to be honest with you though i think with the material we're going to be given i don't think that's going to be something in our hands so maybe instead of just the blue vest that i always wear i'll wear like a leather jacket maybe or something for every episode uh well it depends well sponsorship still needs to be worked out Mm -hmm. um you know we've been with jefferson about uh getting a code that you can enter for my pillows or uh you know uh, buying gold things like that Beat supplements, uh, we w- uh, relief factor. We, we have no advertising. We will not be so. We will not sell out here at the at, at the right idea. Yeah, Brian will not sell out. But if you have any inquiries, contact Derek at <laughs> season season five is usually where they introduce the kid. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And speaking of podcasts, Josh has a podcast too. Maybe he'll sell out on his podcast. Uh, he has one here at the, at the foundation called The Hard Country, uh, which is great. It's about 45 minutes to an hour long. They really delve into the history of Texas, but also current and, and, and a number of issues, particularly the Mexico-Texas uh, relationship, which is something that we're going to jump into in a second. But there's two things we want to do. Uh, obviously, I always start with the, um, the shameless promotion of our newsletter. It's called The Post. You can uh, subscribe if you're not already subscribed. It's at texaspolicy.com. The post, it has uh, exclusive uh, exclusive writing, uh, exclusive information. We always do something fun and cultural about Texas, uh, usually at the end of the, of the, at the newsletter. So please sign up for the post. Um, and then we also have a daily email called The Canon. We'd love you to sign up for, as well as any number of our other podcasts, uh, Josh has included, which we'll uh, talk about in a little bit. But since we're not, no, since we're no longer in session, even special session now, Derek, there's not really a, we're going we're gonna to change up the, the segment for you. So we're going to do a session update. We're now officially an interim. And so uh, what is the interim? A sexy, new sexy branding we have called the interim <laughs> update. Uh, we'll work on that. But um, but uh, but what's going on in the interim that we need to, that our listeners and viewers need to know about? Well, nothing, to, you know, nothing defines a show like sexy branding. So I think that, you know, we could just double down on that. No, you mentioned the interim update. So obviously, you know, very rarely are we often in sequential special sessions like we were this year. And even though uh, some big ticket items such as school choice was left on the table, you know, some of these special sessions did arrive to certain items of border security, uh, items of property tax relief, all these things that were very important to uh, the Texas taxpayer. So now we're in the interim. What does that mean? Well, as you know, we're supposed to only have 140 days every two years of of a legislative (laughs) session. You know, that's a great, you know, it's a more like a guideline. Um, it's 140 days every two months than <laughs> last year. <laughs> it, 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 some, some would say, some would say. But that being said is the, there is business to be done in the interim. You know, we've seen on both the House and Senate side calls going out to the committee chairs saying, what do you want to look at for this coming legislature, for the 89th, for, you know, the 2025 session? As mm-hmm. 
And so during these interim uh, hearings, what they do is that the speaker or the lieutenant governor will issue each committee. I want you to look at X, Y, and Z. And some of them, there may be a long list. Some might only have three. Some might be about exploring a new avenue of policy. Others might be about monitoring the implementation of policy recently passed. Mm. All that is to say is what this allows is for the lawmakers and their staffs even more directly to get a running start on whatever the thing might be. If it's if there's problems with implementing HB 1234, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to document what those shortcomings are and perhaps come up with a solution for correcting it uh, as things <clears throat> things are going in a subsequent legislature. Conversely, if there's something that has been addressed but is not being, uh, you know, modulated by some law that was passed, they can revisit that particular question. I know for a fact that if you look at some of the work that goes on in some of the border adjacent uh, committees is, you know, we've, you know, we're shooting every single arrow from the quiver at solving this problem. And yet, you know, with the abdication of the federal responsibility, which we talked about numerous times on this podcast and which Josh talks about almost, day, uh, you know, per episode on his is something that there's going to be, obviously, first and foremost, there's going to be other ones, you know, committees like county affairs or, uh, you know, juvenile justice and family issues. And I'm not picking on those committees specifically, but ones that don't necessarily have, you know, some big, high publicity, high ticket policy question facing those members right Mm -hmm. there. So they might have more of a a limited uh, interim uh, research report, one that looks more on implementations, maybe the efficacy of the different state agencies that are under their purview. But again, so from, you know, soup to nuts, whether we're talking about the little questions or the big questions, this gives the legislature a running start on tackling those and hopefully coming to some consensus prior to a bill being filed. How do state? How do the committees decide which um, which issues to work on? Is it just kind of an in you know internal back you know backroom type type discussion, or is is the public allowed to weigh in and be like, hey, you, you know this this policy isn't being implemented correctly? Y'all need to look at this. Oh, absolutely, and and, and research organizations, advocacy groups, uh, you know, C three, C fours. All of them have, you know, a voice in the process. Now, what most uh, committee chairs will do is they'll take all their submissions that they'll they'll receive, and they'll compile them down, and they'll send recommendations to the speaker, mm. because technically, or the speaker or the lieutenant governor, because technically, the speaker and the lieutenant governor are the are the ones who decide for their chamber what you know what eight items, what four items, what twelve items will be reviewed by that particular committee, and so. You know, there's a lot of folks who take the advocacy approach where, like, I'm just going to go and say, you know what we need to do is we need to get, uh, like, a local, you know, a local Paw Patrol established at all major cities in Texas, and they'll go to... <laughs> My uh, daughter would love that. Yeah, they'll go to Urban mm-hmm. Affairs and say, we need to study this, and then there'll be the end of the day, or the, that'll be the end of that. They'll uh, The Urban Affairs Committee will look at the uh, suggestion and say, wow, this is absolutely insane that we would trust a bunch of dogs to mm-hmm. fulfill municipal services, and then it doesn't go anything from there. So what a lot of folks do is they talk to the requisite uh, SME in the uh, speaker or ten governor's office. They'll talk to the committee and then hopefully come to a meeting of the mic. Because sometimes ideas that are forwarded during this interim process are not, we'll just say not ready for prime time. Right. And even if this is an exploratory function of the legislature that's baked into the rules, 
you know, not every not every suggestion is even ready for that. Right. So so it's not the case that after the legislative session ends, you know, members just go home and that's it. And, you know, they don't they, don't, they cease to be uh, working or being members and, until the next legislative session. There's still actually a lot of work to do, particularly. And they have an interest in doing this because, like you said, it gives them a ramp up for next session. Well, I can tell you, I can tell you, I, I know firsthand that between uh, now and March, there's going to be a lot of members that are working. I just don't know about it on the interim. Uh, well, on that's the true. We're going to get to that. We're going to talk about elections. Yeah here uh, in a little bit to the extent that the C3 can. But before that, um, I want to introduce again, I think now for the third time, uh, Josh Trevino is our Chief of Intelligence and Research and the Director of Texas Identity at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Um, really, it's, it's I, don't, I don't know where to begin in terms of your subject matter expertise. I say Texas history, but also, um, you know, definitely the, the Mexico-Texas relationship. I know that you've taken personal trips just to go visit some of the historical sites around Texas to, yeah, to yeah. expand your knowledge of that. Can you just give us just give it uh, just give us i mean if you can to the best of your ability in an hour-long show or so an overview of kind of where maybe a little bit of the history but uh, but, uh, but some of the overview of kind of where the texas um uh, mexico relationship stands now and why that's so different than what it used to be and you said i have an hour full hour yeah a full hour okay. to talk about yeah, this no all right problem. so no derek and i'll just kick back Man. and you go Look, the thumbnail is that uh, the Texas-Mexico relationship was obviously, you know, 200 years of relationship coming on to 200 years next decade and uh, started in war. And it was characterized really in the first century of the relationship by uh, endemic warfare, endemic violence, uh, you know, two peoples. Uh, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm half Mexican. So, you know, I've got I've got both peoples represented uh, with me uh, with a lot of other Texans, too. Um, but the, the You've past got a war century, going on inside. Yeah, just a war going. Uh, but it's delicious. A, a tussle inside. Yeah, <laughs> uh, maybe that's one adjective. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> So, uh, you know, but, but but really for the past century, we've kind of had a holiday from history, uh, honestly. You know, when you when you think about uh, going up through really about 1920 or so, uh, the, the, the Texas-Mexico relationship was predicated upon a frontier that was extremely porous, extremely violent, um, uh, had a lot of movement back and forth, and needed to be constantly policed, uh, oftentimes mm-hmm. with, with, with legitimate military force. Um, uh, around 1920, that uh, it wasn't a hard end to it, but around 1920, that started to end. Uh, and really, we had like this holiday from history, essentially from the 1920s uh, through 2006 or so, maybe 2010, depending on how you want to count it, with the advent of the modern drug war. And so one of the theses that we've been working with is that what we're seeing now with rising violence on the Texas-Mexico border, with the breakdown of the Mexican state, with the Mexican state's own turn toward antagonism to Texas, Mm -hmm. um, is that it's not really a new phenomenon. It's actually a reversion to a norm that we thought Mm -hmm. we'd escaped, uh, but but in in fact has proven its endurance, as it has in so many places around the world, on the Texas-Mexico border. So, So, you know, what we try to do when we engage in history uh, is, is you know, we, we don't do it because it's interesting, although it is. We do it because it provides a toolkit for understanding and solving problems today mm-hmm. uh, that we're dealing with in this generation and this moment. And uh, there's nowhere to my mind that's that uh, that's more useful than on the Texas-Mexico border. Um, so let's fast forward then to last December. Um, and and in, in a series of, I mean, I feel like, and this is one of the reasons why you know we're starting off season two with this issue. We've probably talked about this issue through, you know, almost every show, uh, but we've we've highlighted it a couple times as well. Mm-hmm. And here we are back talking about this issue. It's the number one issue for Texans. It's the number two or three issue for conservatives in the in the country. It is probably going to be the number one issue for the Republican side of the ticket going into the election uh, at the end of the year. And so that's why you know we just feel like we have to cover it. And and, and but but in this case, it's 
it's been bomb. I mean, since our last show, it's been bomb after bomb after bomb headline oh, of yeah. what's going on between the Texas, between Texas, the Biden administration, and Mexico. In addition, the first one I want to start with is uh, they just announced that December, after everything that we've been through the last three years with Biden and all of the increases and the explosion of migrants coming across the border, um, the largest increase, the largest single crossing ever uh, for migrants was this last December. Uh, it was it was mm-hmm. it over three hundred thousand? Yeah, over three hundred thousand um, um, apprehensions at the border, plus all the gotaways and all of that. Well, I mean, I, I don't even know what question to ask you, other than what do we do about that? <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it's it's interesting. There, there are things that are simple but not easy, uh, and and solving the border issue is, is is simple but not easy, and it's mm-hmm. not easy for a variety of things that we can get into. Uh, but but before we talk about that, I want to I want to drill into that number. So 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 three about three hundred thousand uh, apprehensions, mm-hmm. right? And so to your point, that doesn't include all the encounters. So the encounters are probably depending on what the what the factor is, probably about twice that, maybe more. Uh, and then the rule of thumb uh, that that is used time and again is that the number of encounters that you have is is, is around twenty percent of the actual number that have have tried to cross. So you know we can speculate outward and keep in mind this is all very back of envelope. But if you've got about three hundred thousand apprehensions, maybe you've got let's say half a mil just for the sake of the ease of my mental math. Uh, mm-hmm. You know you know actual actual uh, actual encounters. Uh, and then if that's 20% of, of of everybody who's come through, then then you've basically got four times that. You've got 2 million people who are entering uh, the United States uh, unobstructed. And so, and so in, in a month, in one month. That and so, so telescope that out to a year. And what you're talking about is, you know, prospectively anywhere from, and nobody really knows, mm-hmm. 5 million, 10 million, 12 million individuals entering the United States unaccounted for uh, every year. We don't know who they are. We do know that they're all part of trafficking networks of some kind. Now, whether those networks lead back to Guatemalan gangs or Mexican gangs or Hezbollah is an open question, right? And so we don't know. It doesn't take a lot of bad apples. But the reality is that, uh, you know, the population of the United States itself is about 330 million-ish. And you're talking, uh, you know, percentage-wise, a tremendous proportion of people in America now, I won't say Americans because they're all here illegally, but, uh, you know, uh, people in the United States who are... um, who are, who are foreigners in the most literal sense, uh, mm-hmm. without without uh, remit or permission to be here, and that I think is a tremendous existential crisis. Whatever one mm-hmm. thinks of migration or immigration or anything like yeah. that, and you know, people of good good intent vary, but uh, that's something we got to deal with. Yeah, Derek. Well, I mean, what about the Texas response? I mean, you know, the governor can do all he can do, and and and, and I give him marks for you know, trying to do it at least in a constitutional way. And he's, he's definitely, you know, been thoughtful about his approach to this. But what, I mean, we've tried legislation, tried executive action. What do you make of the text response? Yeah, and, and essentially, I mean, whether we look at this as a, a route from US v. Arizona from back in the day, or if we see this as, you know, a, a, a symptom of modern cause, regardless of what the case is, a state on its own is not wholly able to address this. And again, legal preemption aside, right? But the problem is, is that, you know, we've fired, like I said, we fired almost every arrow we have in the quiver. We have spent an awful lot of money. And, you know, this isn't to, to denigrate the amount of money being spent, but it's like only so much you can do 
when you basically have a federal government that I don't think I'm out of uh, that I don't think I'm out of line for saying is basically throwing the gates wide open. You know, we're t we're talking today on Wednesday. There's talk of uh, you know impeachment proceedings against uh, Secretary Mayorkas mm -hmm. for his actual shambolic handling of this particular issue, and not even just the handling of a difficult issue, but the the constant gaslighting and lying to the American people about mm -hmm. it. And so I think what we need to what, one of the things that we need to do, as far as a state is concerned, is, is again I, I don't want to say we just we keep cutting checks you know ad infinitum. But what we do need to do is we need to find areas of questionable federal preemption or find areas of uh, where the federal government is simply absent, if not silent, you know, and basically assert the, our, our sovereignty principles there. And because Josh brought up a really good point, and even as somebody who has, you know, sympathies for, you know, a, a legalized immigration structure, one of the areas right now in our campaign uh, that deals with the secure and sovereign frontiers is run by Karine Martinez, who is a you know American citizen, native of, of France. One of the problems that they have in France right now is the fact that they, unlike us, do not have a, a system of like birthright citizenship. And so we have this these entire neighborhoods, entire cities of basically second class citizens, people detached from the mainstream through legalistic means. This is what we're going to, this, this, I don't know if you want to call it benign neglect on behalf of the federal government, but that is what's going to get inculcated here is that where we have two parallel coexisting societies right. and that when it comes to issues of civic peace is completely untenable. Hat tip to uh, Representative Jared Patterson. I saw a tweet from him today uh, saying that four years ago, Texas spent $500 million on border security. And in this session, we're going to, or this year, this whatever it is, uh, $6.6 .6 billion of Texan money, of Texan taxpayer money right. is going to be spent uh, on border security. Um, one of the things that the governor has done, which I don't know, you know, maybe it was a gimmick or maybe, you know, people on the left might call it a stunt, was the busing. They did the, the like, to, to, to collect people at the border who are willingly getting on these buses and then sending them to sanctuary cities. So Necessity. Yeah, sending them to New York and Chicago. And what started out as kind of like a messaging point um, to, to say, look, if you if you you know want to have those policies and that's what's encouraging people to come here, then you need to be dealing with it because we're dealing with you know hundreds of thousands coming across the board every day. The least you can do is take 10 or 20,000 of them. Uh, well, this is causing a crisis in these cities, Josh. It has. And we've now yeah. have, uh, because the, the cities can't do it, they, they can't get the Biden administration to respond to them. And they can't get Texas obviously to, obviously to stop what it's doing because it's working. It's causing you know it's creating um, a, a lot of attention around this issue. Now they're suing the bus companies for, for bringing that for bringing people who are willingly coming to their cities where they have a policy of sanctuary cities. They're now suing. You know, New York is now uh, so they're going to sue the bus companies. Like where does this all lead? I'm I'm uh, very entertained at uh, leftist states deciding that uh, free interstate commerce is no longer a core principle of uh, of constitutional <laughs> governance. I mean we I mean, can look, roll back interstate commerce. Law. That'd, be, that'd be actually kind of great. It's Chance even is about to burst through this wall like a Kool-Aid yeah. man saying, you guys want to get rid of the Commerce Clause? It's <laughs> even worse than that. I don't, I don't know if you guys saw that, uh, I believe it's in New York, they actually closed down a high school and sent the entire Today? population of the high school two-day virtual education for the rest of the year. overrun by, by illegal immigrants right now. O'Hare so Airport is? O'Hare Airport is, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad O'Hare is uh, having the same experience it always has. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but, but look, I mean, I mean, closing down a school... 
uh, and sending the entire student body virtual so that they could house uh, illegal migrants uh, at the school is is uh, atrociously bad. I mean, it's catastrophically bad. But I'll tell you what, uh, you know, whether or not we think that the that the busing, uh, and you have to credit Greg Abbott for it. This is something I think national press has gotten wrong because uh, there it, it came into their consciousness. Because uh, Governor DeSantis, I believe, sent that that plane load of migrants to Martha's Vineyard, right. which is sort of like the Garden of Eden for them. Who they then deported? I, I know. Of well, when you do it like the when, like the like the epicenter of people who subscribe to the Atlantic, then it suddenly becomes a national crisis right. for them. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, but it, it, you know it was but but it was actually it was actually Greg Abbott who thought of it, and it was such a good idea that has borne such rich fruit from a policy standpoint, mm-hmm. from a demonstrative standpoint, uh, that uh, as, as as a Texan. Uh, I fully support it. Uh, I think they should be made to they being the great mass of of leftist states and individuals and regime, you know, apparatchiks who are happy to let Texas suffer uh, for their bad policies. Mm-hmm. Now they get to live with it, too. And yeah. that, that that's all for the good. And I hope it spurs them to good policy. But if it doesn't. Uh, then enjoy the consequences. So the other side of this is not only is the uh, Biden administration not doing anything on this, um, or, or and, and has actually you know made the problem worse by lifting a lot of the Trump era uh, policies that were working at the time. Um, they're actually preventing Texas from trying to address the problem. So not only are they against the busing and all that kind of stuff. The third bomb uh, that went off is that the Biden administration is suing Texas to stop enforcement of its own law. SB4, which we've talked Correct. about on this show, talked yeah. about it a couple weeks ago um, uh, with folks, which is essentially the, the one which I, I can't even believe it wasn't a law. Uh, you had to make a law to make it a state felony for crossing into Texas illegally. Well, you didn't need a law before because the assumption was that the federal government would do its job. Right. Yeah. But, but the, so, so I think a lot of people are scratching their heads at why we even needed a law. But the Biden administration is now suing Texas for yes. implementing that law. Uh, and we've talked about how the, the, um, the Democrat Party is now going to work with the Mexican government a la the cartels to go around Texas uh, undermining the law. Um, but, yeah. but that was the one that went off. Is that is that not only are they not doing their job and making it harder for Texas to do its job, but now it's actually trying to prevent, literally prevent them. Gosh. It's even worse than you say. Okay, great. The Here reason, we go. The Bond reason that they're doing it, the reason that they're doing it, the reason that they, that they sought to remove the Texas border barriers around Eagle Pass, and now DOJ has filed litigation against the implementation of SB4 in Texas is specifically because the Mexican government asked Washington, D.C. to do it. That's something that every Texan needs to understand. We're not just contending with power south of the border. We're contending with Mexico City. And our other opponent in this, which is important to say, is the federal government itself. Mm-hmm. And Washington, D.C. and Mexico City are working together on this. That litigation would probably not be happening, at least not in the way that it is, or the timing that it is, but for the explicit request of the Mexicans themselves. Now, this is something, and I don't, I don't like to say, we told you so, but sometimes we can pat ourselves on the back and say, we told you so, but uh, uh, through our... Uh, our CEO, Greg Sindelar, wrote an op-ed back in August in which he predicted that that this issue was going to be so bad that it would start to sag uh, Biden's re-election chances and sag his numbers because they haven't responded to this at all. And that's what we've been seeing over the last quarter or so. And the Democrats, and you've seen reports about this is the case, that that the immigration problem is starting to sink Biden and really drag him down. We, we published this in August and mm-hmm. said that the American president who is running for re-election benefits greatly if Mexico claims 
clamps down on human trafficking crisis in the run-up to 2024. Now, we wrote that and predicted that back in August, and here we have, what, the fourth big big bomb now is that uh, is that there is that there was a deal as you as you referenced there was a deal between uh, Biden and the American and the, and the Mexican uh, president uh, that the Mexican side would now start to clamp down on the border crossings right it, right but the bomb is in ex- we now know the full list of demands which is in exchange for what it, what did the Mexican president ask for I mean I mean uh, the, the, the Mexicans <laughs> first of all you have to admire just the the canniness of the Mexicans because the Mexicans actually have a weak hand versus the United States they don't actually prevail of us uh, over us objectively in anything economics military so on uh, avocados it. Yeah. Oh, true. 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 Yes. Yes. Just, although, uh, although uh, we just got caught. Like you said, man. Commodity suppliers uh, trying to leverage that tend to uh, <laughs> tend to lose out in the long run. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you the story of Egyptian cotton sometime. <laughs> the, uh, but that could, that's a whole other. Yeah, that's, a, that's another story for another time. <laughs> Uh, uh, look, you know, the, the United States, uh, which is typical of the Biden regime at this point, has been acting like it has the weak hand. And so the Mexicans, uh, you know, very clearly understand the psychology of the Biden team. And so they've been making very extravagant demands. And so their demands have, have been, uh, uh, and this really became clear with the communique on December 28th, in exchange for shutting down uh, migrant flows, at least through re-election, what they hope is going to be the re-election mm-hmm. of President Biden. And, and, and believe me, they really do want Biden re-elected. Uh, uh, their price tag is uh, uh, DOJ has to attack Texas, which is which is done. The United States has to send twenty billion dollars for a root causes of migration fund uh, that the Mexicans will help administer. Uh, uh, the U.S. should lift sanctions on Cuba. The U.S. should lift sanctions on Venezuela, which has already been partially done. Um, uh, sending the, oil to those countries? Uh, it, well, right. So, so in the case of Venezuela, it's, it's Venezuela gets to send oil elsewhere, mm-hmm. which what's left of their of, of their infrastructure. But and then there's even even petty minor things. Um, uh, Isn't the, there legalization of millions of Mexicans already here? Yeah, yeah, like a regularization of status is what they're calling it uh, mm-hmm. for 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 a lot of the for a lot of the illegals that are here. Uh, and so and so you know and 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 the Biden the Biden regime has capitulated almost all of this. I think I think the one thing that they haven't capitulated to is an easing of sanctions on Cuba, although they're kind of doing it through the back door because you actually see like the interest section uh, uh, in in Havana like promoting tourism to Cuba, which is weird for the United States government to be doing. But mm-hmm. uh, but you know they they I'll I'll tell you this. I mean the the, the Mexican regime is it's a cartel regime uh, the president of Mexico himself is directly complicit with cartels we've been saying this for, for for months and months but it's also a very hard left regime and so it has a positive interest in defending the leftist dictatorships in Nicaragua Venezuela Cuba and so on and uh, when the Biden administration tried to point this out in the communique on December 28th uh, uh, that uh, that hey this democratic backsliding was the phrase that they used in the communique the Mexicans freaked out uh, and they actually made our State Department take that phrase out of the official communique because they didn't want a hint of criticism of the cronious leftist regimes in Latin America that are mm-hmm. sending all these people north. That is, it just it just seems like it seems like too many steps. Why don't they just fly an Iranian flag and the Biden administration will do whatever they need? That you know that is almost that is almost happening. It is almost <laughs> happening. Uh, you know, on September we've talked about this on the Hard Country. You know, the podcast uh, that we do here on which is on border affairs. We have shameless plugs here. You don't have to slip it in that. Yeah, way. Okay, if you just right. want to look directly in the camera and say, "Watch the Hard Country." Watch the Hard Country. <laughs> yes, uh, but you know we talked about this on, the, on September 16th, the Mexican Independence Day. They actually had uh, Chinese and Russian troops marching through the Zocalo in Mexico City, which was a message to the United States to generate leverage uh, for all of this. Yeah. So it's uh, the things have gone far. Can, can I add one thing real Absolutely. quick? You know, you know, for the, yeah. uh, this is a little bit external to, to, uh, to, to what we're doing here, but it's worth noting. 
uh, just in the past 24 hours, uh, Ecuador has disintegrated. Basically, there's there's something close to a full-on civil war in Ecuador mm. right now because there are various uh, loosely coordinated cartel elements that are- Yeah, there's a viral video going around of them taking over a TV station. Taking over a news TV station, yeah. executing policemen, taking over prisons, you know, announcing, and the, the, the president of Ecuador has announced that the military is going to fight the cartels. So it's, it, it's a bad situation. This is where Latin America is headed uh, in the Biden years. And we make no mistake, last month was the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine. And those who would abandon it uh, in favor of a vision of weakness and accommodation with these regimes south of the Rio Grande are directly responsible for what's happening. Uh, and all this ends up, you know, we talk about Latin America, all this ends up in Texas communities yep. uh, and thanks to the bus companies uh, in New York communities too. Mm -hmm. Um, Derek, going back to, you know, my, my my very first press secretary job was for a U U.S. House representative in New Mexico. We had the Southern District, and so it was the longest uh, Southern border in any one district uh, in the country. So I've been looking at these issues for a long time, and every single time we've addressed it, whether it was 2007, 2013, um, and, then, and then into the crisis that we have today, you know, every administration, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. All the law enforcement officers at the federal, state, and local levels all say the same thing. In order to secure the border, you need three things. You need a barrier of some kind. Call it a wall. Call it whatever you want to call it. You need a barrier. You need technology. And you need personnel. Mm -hmm. And it, and they've all said something like that for the last 15, 20 years since I've been paying attention and, and in politics and all this. What is, what is so hard about coming together on something like that, like border security, mm -hmm. when everybody that's an expert on this stuff, particularly particularly on securing the border, all says the same thing and has said for and has said it that way for decades. Well, no, and, and I think that you generally see, and this is what, and sadly, that's what gives Secretary Mayorkas the, well, the very thin but cover to say that, oh, the border is not open. He's like, because we do in some parts have a wall. <laughs> we do have more than zero uh, people in the border patrol uh, enforcing it. And we do have technology that sometimes alerts us to a crossing and we get people over there within the next 48 hours to address it. <laughs> and so I think that that gives him the ability to say that. Now, the problem, though, is because not only I mean, we talk about all these soft projections from the Obama administration, not Obama, sorry, uh, Freudian slip there um, from the Biden administration. <laughs> Obama, too. Yeah. <laughs> but you repeat yourself. Yeah. Well, well I mean, I was just going to go back to Iran if we want to talk about that. But um, <laughs> the palette full of money. But, but that's but that's the whole thing is like. There, there is a, you know, I throw around the word dereliction, but I'm starting to think that that doesn't carry enough uh, purpose, enough like dedicated intensity to actually say what the, uh, the Biden administration is doing is that they, for whatever reason, whether it's a, you know, a, a, a coalitional, politi cynical political gambit, so that the, the, the hard left that are, you know, really agitating for no borders or thinking that this is, you know, part of, you know, this is going to fulfill Rui Teixeira's, uh, you know, greatest uh, victory here, who, who, by the way, has come out and self-criticized his own work and now works at AEI. Um, but whether or not it's going to be the, you know, this is going to be the blunt force version of demography being destiny, whatever the case is, there just is no political will. Mm. And so that's why, back to your point about the busing, sending folks to these Democrat mainstays, you know, actually says, no, this is not a pinch because everyone in Texas hates migrants. Everybody in uh, Florida hates migrants. No, they're real 
constraints being put on these communities and spreading them around doesn't solve the constraint issues. Right. But what it does is it actually gives some sort of transparency into it for the Adams administration, for the, you know, the folks in Los Angeles, Chicago, whatever the case might be, to make sure that they're actually having these conversations within the party. Now, unfortunately, specifically with Eric Adams, you know, he's one of these guys that is definitely of the left. And while he does have some some good ideas on public safety. I don't know if that's going to be that plus this is going to get you to a point where he says, we need to shut down the border unequivocally. Because the thing is, is you're never going to shut it down entirely. And it's only going to be further and further from that, the more kind of soft pull mm -hmm. that we offer. And you talked about political will, so that's a good segue into my last question for Josh and into our, our segment. We're going to be doing this kind of surprise. We're going to do uh, political pred or predictions for the year so that we can all look back and see how wrong we were at the oh, end of this. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Uh, so I'm, gonna, I'm surprising to be here you. For that. Yeah. Uh, I'm surprising you with that. Um, but talking about the political will, um, you know, let's say that a Republican does beat uh, Biden uh, this, this fall, um, and whoever that is, if that's Trump or DeSantis or Haley or whoever, um, what what changes? Does something change overnight? I mean, is there is there you know? I know Biden in his first four days or five days or week, you know, tried to undo almost all of the um, Trump era uh, border stuff. Um, can he just if Trump gets back in or DeSantis or somebody, they just rewrite it back and then all of a sudden we're we're back to enforcing the border? Or how does this all change the day after we don't have Biden? Well, I don't I don't know how it can change. I can tell you how it will. Or, or let me reverse that. <laughs> Can't tell you how it will change, but I can tell you how it can change. Uh, it, it could change on day one. And the number one thing that the Mexican regime cares about, they don't care about being a good neighbor. They definitely don't care about the welfare of Mexicans. They certainly don't care about the welfare of migrants, but they care about the money. And the one thing, that, the only thing that we have seen generate real change uh, from the Mexican regime in the, in, in the past decade plus, by the way, since the departure of Calderon in 2012, uh, is uh, Trump's threatened tariffs. When Trump threatened tariffs on the Mexican economy, which at a sufficient level would crash that economy, erase about 30 years of economic progress there, mm -hmm. action was generated very quickly. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that needs to be done. We need to move to coercive measures. Uh, you know, First of all, you, you talked about the barrier, the technology, and the personnel. I would add a fourth element to that, which is you need a cooperative state on the South Side. Mm -hmm. And securing that state requires American force majeure. Uh, in whatever form is necessary, but you start with economic, and uh, that that's a that's a day one achievable task. Now you, we f yeah. we forget, but um, Abbott tried that right with the the backups at the border the or, and or truck inspections, secondary, secondary inspections, right? Yeah, and it worked. It was a yeah. very very good idea, um, uh, such a good idea that I've I've tried to figure out how I can take credit for it, but I can't. So it's actually from the governor's <laughs> office. Uh, but yeah, I mean the secondary inspections are exactly if that were applied at the national level. Now the way in which it is applied, it does it does accrue economic pain to the Mexican. But then they go, you know, they, they go to Washington D.C. and complain about it, and so and so you get what you have mm. uh, here. But if there were a federal government uh, that actually you know, cared about Americans, imagine that. Mm -hmm. uh, then, uh, then, then you could you could get change on day one, no yeah. question. You know, it's funny the way you say that. We'll get to the fun predictions in just a second. But you say they cared about Americans. It used to be, well, they're just doing this because it's Texas and Texas is Republican, and they don't care about our politics or our people down here. That's also but, true. But now, which is yeah. true, right? Yeah. I mean, you see this sometimes in. 
administrations. Obama did this with some administration or, you know, with, with some issues. But the, the whole issue of the busing and the fact that you have New York and Illinois and, and other places like that that are that are screaming and crying and, and, and they're still not doing anything really does. It doesn't sound histrionic to say they don't care about Americans because they don't even care about the Americans in the states that vote for them. You know, you know, the, the, the left, I mean, I'm of a certain age. I'm a Gen Xer, uh, which is the best generation. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, but that's you a whole other show. Grow, so we'll talk about that a different show. <laughs> that uh, Gen X and Egyptian silk. That's uh, uh, cotton, please. <laughs> yes. Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, look, you know, the, the left, the left that I grew up with, really the pre 2010 ish, 2015 ish left uh, was what was what was uh, an industrial left. It was a left that you know broadly believed in America, and so it was a left with people like Scoop Jackson or Harry Truman or you know all that, all that. The left now is fundamentally different. It's a left that fundamentally is is uprooted from the idea of a nation, the idea of American history. And so I would say there's a continuity mm-hmm. uh, between the belief that there is no moral opposition to migration of any kind, legal or illegal, which is a genuine belief that a lot of these people hold. And the same people who pull down statues, set aside Confederates of William Penn, of Thomas Jefferson, of Abraham Lincoln, uh, that, that uh, alienation from the country, that alienation from the Republic expresses itself in many ways, and an open border is one of them. No, well, we're not. We are definitely going to continue discussing this, discussing this throughout the year. Um, definitely not in a. Uh uh, an issue that will go away regardless of who wins the presidency. Um, and so we'll still be particularly from this uh, bird's eye view here in Texas. Um, so uh, thank you, Josh, for being on the show. Stick with us. We're going to do about 10 minutes of fun and, and talk about our predictions uh, for the year. But again, I want to, again, shamelessly promote uh, Josh's podcast. It's called The Hard Country uh, with with Melissa Ford, uh, who's uh, who's fantastic. She's really our expert on the, the Mexico-Texas uh, relationship. Um, and we've had her on here before, and she's, she's talked great. about that. And it's fantastic. Yeah, so please, um, if you you get our podcast from YouTube or wherever you get our podcast from, uh, you can do the same uh, with Josh. So thank you so much for being here. All right. 2024 predictions. Mm-hmm. Let's get into it. So the first one, <clears throat> obviously, is the um, uh, well, well, I just want to get into like more issues since this is the right idea. And I always like saying the name of the show on the show. Uh, we're going to get into ideas. So what do you think, Derek? I'll start off with the first one. <clears throat> what do you think the biggest issues for the GOP and the Democratic Party will be going into the elections. These will be the, and, and the way I'm framing this is, like, what will they choose to highlight? Not just necessarily oh. what the media talk about or whatever, but what do you think the issues that, you know, if they could have their way, these are what these are what the Republicans would want to talk about, these are what the Democrats want to talk about. Oh, I think that's largely, I don't think that paint is dry at this point, but I think the it's already on the canvas at least. Mm-hmm. Um I think that if you look at the issues that we'll just say on the Democrat side that they should be talking about, obviously, look, we just did however long we've just done on the border. Uh, yeah. we, we can all agree that that's an issue. Um, but do you think that's number one? Do you think that's I, you know, I, yeah, one? I do think it's number one. I think that's followed shortly behind, but not distinctly from given a lot of the uh, interplay there from the economic issues. You know, Bidenomics, however defined, has been a been a fundamental failure. You know, it it's it's so it's so. I say enlightening to see like the the Paul Krugmans of the world, you know, who talk or maybe the uh, the Council of Economic Advisors when pe- folks on there come out and tweet like, oh, you know, gas is cheaper, you know, it's fifty cents cheaper than last year. It's like after a historic spike. So so in other <laughs> words, if it went up twenty five percent, we're now at twenty percent over its original. And so it's like I think the economy and that as we know from vote it, you know, voting preference, the economy probably motivates whereas discrete issues such as 
the border will animate certain individuals. I, it, I'm i hard pressed to think of, you know, and say like the Ohio electorate, you know, which obviously is a strong constituency for President Trump mm-hmm. to, to say there's a there's a, a cohesive border coalition in Ohio. Yeah. But you know what they have in Ohio, an economy that's affected by issues at the border. Yeah. And so I think that the economy is going to be where they should be focusing, which is going to have implications on the border as well. But what they choose to focus on, as we've seen in his Valley Forge speech, is this this amorphous threat to democracy. And I'll be the first to admit, like, I think that over the last 10 years, both parties, there's nobody without blood on their hands here, has done irreparable damage to the civic norms that govern uh, the way we go about uh, uh, go about our business of self-governance. Mm-hmm. I think folks on the right have done it. I think folks on the left have done it asymmetrically more, mm-hmm. specifically when it comes to issues of completely dissolving city uh, infrastructure and creating these autonomous zones and things like that and these other items we seem to have memory hold from only three years ago. Um, but that being said, they want to pin their entire messaging strategy on, you know, Donald Trump will be Franco at best and Pol Pot at worst. When in truth, you know, if they're already conceding that the American experiment's already over, like it's done. It's, <sighs> you know, the, 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 the folks out there, you know, going, oh, you got to know what time it is. Like the clock's dead. It's broken yeah. at that point. John- so if we are one, if we are one election away from defeat going one way or the other, then we're already done. We have the strong, I still say we have a strong circuit breaker in place that even if you go with the worst, most pernicious views of, say, a President Gavin Newsom or a President Trump or anyone else, is that their dictatorial impulses, however defined, are going to be largely blunted. That's what I would say. And that's why I think they're going to be leaving a lot of it. That's an optimistic look and a very, very faithful to our, our uh, system, uh, the American system of checks and balances. Optimism there. through cynicism. That's what I I'm like delivering. It. I like uh, it. Yeah. Josh, is Midwest. it? Western, very good. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's nice. <laughs> is yeah. it, so Democratic Party is going to be all Trump in January 6th and it won't even be about issues? I mean, they would argue that it is an issue. Uh, but look, I mean, I, th- I think kind of amplify one of Derek's points a little bit. Uh, it's it's the in when you look at the modern kind of violation of norms to bother to, to, to borrow a phrase that they're very fond of using. And th- this, too, is memory hold uh, our, you know, our current, uh, say, democratic, small D democratic crisis uh, was kicked off by by large D democratic decisions to overrun and overtake two state legislators over a decade ago in Wisconsin and here in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we should never forget that. Uh, and you know, frankly, they got away with it. There were no prosecutions after it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Nothing like J6, uh, but, but, but candidly there ought to have been, but there wasn't because the perpetrators were on the left. Mm-hmm. And that imbalance I think feeds into what I think is gonna be one of the two major issues in this election campaign, which is a lot of people are gonna ask, who is this country for? On whose behalf is America run? Is it run on mine? If I defend myself in my home, home uh, or my land, am I going to be prosecuted? And the answer is frequently yes, and people are going to draw conclusions from that. And there's a whole variety of examples. Depends on you if you have a MAGA flag outside. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's, 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 which, it's which signifier, which cultural signifier right, you yeah. attach yourself to. Um, on the other hand, uh, I do think that there's going to be one issue that is going to sit on top of all of that, which is which is cost of living, cost of living, cost of living. Mm-hmm. Quality of life. Yeah, yeah, those issues. So we only have a couple minutes left. Um, is anybody who thinks that 
it won't it won't be Trump or Biden <clears throat> for the nomination. I know Iowa's is this week is uh, on Monday. There's a 30, 30 point uh, Trump lead, but it looks like maybe some of the other contests may be closing. Does anybody think it won't be uh, Trump? It won't be Biden. Well, I think we're we're, we're we've got we've survived Bergamentum though. But Hutch's sanity is still in play. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there no, are three guys running against uh, three uh, running against Biden. So no, I, I, th- I think we pretty much know what the November that. ballot's going to look like. Um, we know, and and, and I'll, I'll even go a little bit further on a limb and say that uh, Trump will be uh, Trump will be reelected this year. Re- okay, yeah. yeah. Ooh, Are you going to call the winner there? Uh, yeah, Biden I was about to say. Allow me to to descend from the guest. Just speaking from a political science standpoint. Um, well, I think we can say that obviously uh, both gentlemen's unfavorables are in unprecedented territory um, from a historical perspective. The one question that I'd have about a re-election, obviously, there's going to, we have not gotten to the part of the campaign where uh, you know Biden's going to, it's going to be Fannie Willis this, uh, Alvin Bragg that, and there's just going to be six months of hearing about all these indictments and everything. I don't, I don't think. I think that's not going to persuade anybody in the middle who's largely already made up their mind. The issue that you're going to have and where you're going to start seeing people peel off is we're going to have individuals who are very rarely does somebody, if presented with the exact same electoral choice, go with a different option. It happens. You, you have to have some sort of structural break. Like you'll have Obama people that go with Trump. Right. But then you have those same people going back to Biden. Now, if it's the same question of Trump versus Biden, there needs to be a very strong force of gravity to pull them away there. Mm -hmm. The bigger issue, and this is where I think the question lies, is who does this force to stay home or even more so just completely neglect the top of the ticket together? And that's where I think you're going to see a lot of the you know, interesting analysis. Th- there's the midwit bell curve. And so by the end of the year, we'll know which one of us is actually on the like the center of that midwit bell curve. I, I will say this, though, that there's a substantive population of people who voted for Biden in 2020 and regret the vote. Mm-hmm. There's not a substantive population of Trump 2020 voters who mm-hmm. regret the vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's going to make a difference. All I know is if yeah. the guy that I like wins, then it's a restoration of American values. If the guy that I don't like wins, then it, clearly the election was still that's, That is so. a first principles <laughs> approach, yeah, yeah. and I like it. Yeah. But you're, you're a vermin supreme guy, though, right? I know. I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying which you. I just said, it, you know, I guess it's a guy because I said guy, but that's the only that's the only thing um, I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> typical libertarian letting you know. <laughs> well, the most important prediction, of course, uh, for 2024 is who will win the Super Bowl. And now that we officially have both for the first time in like a bazillion years, both Texas teams mm. are going to the playoffs, have mm. a potential to win the Super Bowl. Could we see and would you be so bold as to pick right now a Houston Texans and Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl. I know, Josh, you are a suffering Cowboys fan, um, but uh, I, would you pick them? I feel I feel about the Dallas Cowboys the way that Tony Soprano felt about his best friend, Big Pussy Bumpin' Zero, and I'm disappointed in the same ways, too. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. How do you follow yeah, that? Yeah, well, I, easily. No, I, I wish the Cowboys the the best of luck specifically. I mean, it's going to be tough for them if Brad Allen and his refereeing crew aren't going to get a shift in the playoffs because of their abysmal performance. <laughs> Say, for example, maybe against the Lions. Say, for example, maybe against the Lions. <laughs> We're going to, you know, they're just not going to be able to, they're not going to be able to get across the goal line. You know, you, if your uh, defensive strategy relies on refs for getting on how many people reported in, it's just a, it's a contentious, it's a contentious way of going. I will say though, if I had to predict, you know, all joking aside. And are you a Detroit fan? Because talk about long, talk about long suffering. No, no, this, I, is, a, no. this is a Michigan football guy. Yeah, yeah I'm a, right? a Michigan football guy. But my so well, I actually, I actually went to a, I went to the Detroit uh, Chargers game in L.A. Uh, this year, or back in November, I should say. Um, 
So they're they're you know grew up forty minutes from Detroit. They're like a secondary a secondary team of mine. But I'm a I'm a Steelers guy. So this oh, is wow. like Jeez. I'm more you know how like necromancers keeping the suspended state of undeath. That's what the Steelers have going on because they refuse to actually. And now I just saw yesterday that they're they're going to be bringing on uh, Russell Wilson. So it's another three years of failing to rebuild the program. <laughs> and it's to a point where obviously Mike Tomlin has delivered a lot of good for that team. It just it's done. This is not me saying the Steelers are going to win the Super Bowl. I'm gonna, Put up an okay. So, so, so wait. I they're decided, in the playoffs. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that if you're a fan of one of the the true legacy franchises, which is going to be Steelers, Cowboys, Redskins, or what used to be the Redskins, you know, Miami Dolphins, mm-hmm. like that, Broncos, maybe mm-hmm. every single one of them has a second team yeah. to stand in for all their hopes and dreams when their primary team fails them. That's what the Lions are to you. Yeah. So that's <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's the role the Lions that. play in it, your fandom. In, internalize yeah. that. Going. Oh man, I get all this stress and anxiety caused by the Steelers. Who do I rely on? The Detroit, the Detroit Lions. Lions I know, yeah. So, like, yeah, I, right. I've seen darkness. That's man. a bad I've choice. I've seen darkness. Yeah. Hey, you got yeah. a national championship this yeah. year, so I mean, uh, you, your sports that, should be should keep that, you. Uh, you're you know, you're ready you for a Mexico decade. policy. <laughs> Yeah. Certainly not. Am I that yeah. black pilled? I'm ready for yeah, no, you're as, a long, yeah. as, a, as a Longhorn fan, we've been sitting on that national championship for 18 years. So I, I will say though, if you want an actual prediction, I do think the winner will come out of the uh, AFC North. All right, all right. Well, there you It'll go. So that's so our third show is going to be, and if we're not talking about Egyptian cotton or these other issues, we'll also do a hot takes on sports. Uh, we'll do that at some Amazing. point. But we have definitely allotted all of our time. Uh, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Josh, for spending time with us today and and going through all those very very important issues. As we always like to say, in the words of Sam Houston, do good and risk the consequences. We'll see you next time.